Okay, Titus chapter number two. Uh, We'll be looking at the whole chapter in just a moment. But in the ancient Roman world, it was common for the patriarch of a home, that is the the head, the leader of the home, uh, to create what was called a house code. And a house code uh, was a contractual document that gave instruction to each member of that house into their responsibilities. And so what were the responsibilities that the wife had in the home? What were the responsibilities that the children had in the home? What were the responsibilities of the servants and so on and so forth? And interestingly, what we find in certain places in the New Testament is Paul actually incorporates that cultural idea of a house code into the letters that we find in the New Testament. Specifically, if you think about Ephesians chapter 5, some of you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 5. What does he do in Ephesians 5? He says, husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. Wives, here's what you're supposed to do. And then he moves into chapter 6. Children, parents, servants, masters. He moves through the list and outlines the responsibilities that would be required of a home that is led by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he takes that idea. But here in Titus 2, we find something similar to that. I don't know that it's the same. Uh, We could call it a modified household code because it doesn't address the specific roles within the home. Instead, it addresses certain demographics that make up a church. And, And Titus is on the island of Crete to establish and order the churches. And so he addresses the older men, the older women, the younger women and the younger men here in chapter 2. And last week we discussed the roles that are outlined for older men and older women and the responsibilities of those who are more mature to disciple those who are less mature. And so we worked through the details of that and uh, this week we pick up uh, looking at the, the younger Uh, generation that is there. One one thing I want to point out, though, as we think about this, um, this idea of responsibility. You are responsible for the people who are sitting around you today. It's what being a part of a church is about. God gives you responsibility, not just for your own life, but for the lives of others. Because you have gifts that the people sitting around you don't have. And they have gifts that you don't have. And and as Aaron even prayed, God sovereignly puts these local bodies of believers together to represent him in the community. I need your eyes watching me and you need my eyes watching you because we all have blind spots. And we have a responsibility to care for and to love. Consider it this way, how many one another commands do we find in the New Testament? I think there's close to 50. How we're to approach and love and serve and greet one another. And so I want to emphasize that point as we move into this, that we have responsibility for one another. And that's not a responsibility that we can fulfill simply on a Sunday morning in the limited time that we have together. That's a responsibility that we carry into the week to love and care and encourage 
and be the person that we're called to be for the other people around us. And so last week we considered verses 2 through uh, 4. That's the first part. Bleeds into verse 4 as you're considering those older women into the younger women. So what I want to do this week, we're just going to look at chapter 2 to get started, and then we'll work through the younger women and the younger men uh, through uh, verse, really, verse number 10. So, but as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then he goes on and says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We'll look at those verses about our work, our employment next week. But notice verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. A people who are zealous for good works. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us now as we consider these truths, as has already been prayed, uh, to live according to them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, the younger women are instructed, we see right off the bat, to love their husbands and their children. And more specifically, the older women are instructed to instruct the younger women in what it is uh, to love their husbands and their children. Notice that it's not Titus who's called to instruct them. Titus is instructing the older women to instruct the younger women, showing that discipleship that's meant to happen within the confines of a local church. And so love for husbands and children uh, seems like it should be a given for us. And so we, we could have the question in our mind, what was going on in Crete? Uh, that this needed to be emphasized. And I don't know that there's anything specific that's going on in Crete uh, that would require that to be emphasized. Uh, that needs to be emphasized everywhere and at all times because love is what we often fail to do. It's the primary of what we're called to do. And it doesn't come naturally. Love is something we're trained in. Love is something of a discipline. We grow in it. We've pushed this button a lot over the last year, but we'll push it again that love is primarily not a feeling or an emotion. Love is a choice. Love is a decision that we make. This is how it's generated in the scriptures. Training yourself to love involves doing loving things for other persons, whether you feel like doing them or not. It involves putting their interest and welfare above your own. It involves sacrificially giving of yourself to others for their sakes and not for the sake of appreciation or applause or to have love return to you or in a favor. Friends, that's how God loves us. 
God loves us with that agape, that unconditional, sacrificial kind of love, and that's how we're called to love as well. Love is the greatest command. Remember, Jesus, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the new commandment that Jesus gives in John chapter 15, the new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit that, that is listed in Galatians 5, what is the first fruit, that seminal fruit that we find? It is love. What is it that will never fail? It is love. What is it that we're to be known by? We, as meaning the followers of Jesus, what did Jesus say? They will know you by your love for one another. Let me offer a couple clarifying points before we move on here. Some may say, well, why are the wives called, why are the young women called to love their husbands, but the husbands aren't called to love their wives? Well, that happens elsewhere. We see that clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and it gets very descriptive. Second, wives are to love their husbands first and then their children. I do believe the order here is important. I don't think it's accidental. And, and wives, believe me, I know it's easier to love your kids than your husbands most of the time. I'm a husband. But there's a purpose in this. And there's a reason for that because the love that is expressed between two parents uh, is an illustration of the love that God has for us. Your kids are able to grow up and see that sacrificial, that kind of love that's displayed. And guess what? Eventually your kids leave and then it's just you and that guy. <laughs> and you don't want him just to be that guy. You want him to be the husband that you've loved. And so we find it very important, that order that's structured there. Love is clearly and beautifully defined for us in 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to know, man, what, what is love? Let me get to the, the core of what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 is where you need to go. Uh, it is full and, and rich with definitions that love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and so on. Next comes the repeated call that we've seen over and over in Titus already that young women are to be self-controlled. They're, they're to be sensible. Again, uh, this is a word that Paul adds in each of these categories that we find. And I, I think the argument could be made that, uh, remember, Crete is an island that is full of people who have no self-control. In fact, Paul, in the intro, he, he quotes one of their own uh, poets who says that Cretans are lazy, they're gluttons, and they're evil beasts. And so self-control was desperately needed on this island. And so younger women, he says, work on cultivating this self-control in your, in your life, which, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit as well. It's the evidence of Christ at work in our lives. And then he says, next, young women are to be pure. Seems to fall in line with self-control, but, but narrowing in even on this idea of marital fidelity. Uh, pure, faithful to their husbands, faithful to their children. Fourth, the younger women are instructed to be working at home. Now, let me be clear. I do not believe this is a mandate that women are only allowed to work at home. Some do look at this, and their conclusion is that if a woman works outside of the home, then they're in some sort of sin in their life. And I do not believe that to be the case. First of all, we have to consider even the culture. Think of first century Crete. How many outside of the home jobs were available anyway. Most homes were operations within themselves. They were the business structure. You had agriculture you had to take care of. There were certain things that you did 
that were so confined in that particular area. And second, the point is not so much that a woman's place is in the home, how some would word it, but the responsibility, their primary responsibility is in the home. Wives, you're called to care for the home, your husbands, and to exemplify what that looks like in the day-to-day life, your children, your children as well, working in the home. The next quality is that she is to be kind. In the home, towards her husband, towards her children, she's called to be kind. What does that mean? It means to be gentle. It means she's to be considerate with her speech. Uh, When I think of kindness in relation to Scripture and what we find in Scripture, the verse that always comes to my mind is, is that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And a wife, a mother, is to have that kindness that, that just draws people in and shows the love that our God has for us. Therefore, you have to fight against irritability. Believe me, I know there's plenty of things to be irritated about. You have to fight against bitterness and selfishness that would want to root itself in your heart and in your life. And instead, you act in kindness and love towards your family. And in doing so, you you display the character of Christ. You also draw them to Him and make Him look attractive to others. Finally, Paul rounds off the list with this. Young women should be submissive to their own husbands. It's a good thing there's nothing controversial in this list, right? Nobody, Nobody takes umbrage with these things. What does this mean? Bottom line, it means God has called men to lead. Just as God has called men to lead in the church, he also calls men to lead in their home. And as I've said before and as I I will continue to say with my dying breath, it it has nothing to do with intelligence levels or or capability levels or any of those things. Then why does God call men to lead? Because that's the created order. The, The argument always goes back when you see Paul making this point or others making this point. It always goes back to Genesis that God created Adam first. And he created Eve second. And that order has flowed from that created order that God established before sin even entered into the world. This is the structure that we find in what God has created. And so what does that submissiveness involve? Biblical submission is not about fear. When I think of fear, you think of maybe a robber who would come up to you with a knife and say, give me your stuff. What are you going to do in that moment? Some, okay, if, you don't ha- if you're not packing, you know, or whatever. I know i got people in here, well, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'm not, no. No, in fear, you would just say, here, take it. You wouldn't be saying, hey, you, you need this more than me. You would do it born out of fear. That's, that's a fearful submission. But what about when you're in the hospital and you've got to have a surgery and the surgeon comes in, he says, I'm going to cut you. <laughs> what do you do? You submit to him in that moment, don't you? You're not submitting to him born out of fear. You're submitting to him born out of trust. That, that's biblical submission. Biblical submission is, is trusting the surgeon to say, you can heal me. You are trained in this. Biblical submission is saying, God, you know better than I do. And that kind of leads to the second point about biblical submission. When wives, when you're submitting to your husband, you're submitting 
as you are to the Lord Jesus. You you don't don't do it alone. You do it in submission to Him. And and the question that you you can always get at this point too is, is, well, what if they... What if they're trying to get me to do something wrong? Then you don't submit. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that because you serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you're being asked in any point, whether that's by somebody who's leading in your home or a pastor who's leading in a church, and if there's a violation of what Christ commands, you submit to Christ. You submit to Him. And now we come to the purpose. I love that that Paul packs in here these, these purpose statements at different junctures in this chapter. He says, you do this so that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul says, young women, you live according to these Christ-like principles so that God's word won't be ridiculed by other people. The point is that if we say we believe in Jesus and we say, I'm a follower of Jesus, then our lives should match what we say. Do I look like a follower of Jesus? Do I act like a follower of Jesus? And when our actions don't prove our faith, others can question the validity of our faith. And they should. And when our actions don't prove the validity of our faith, they should question the word of God from which we derive our faith. Some of you have noticed, um, and, and many of you have mentioned to me, my weight loss. Back at the end of August, I, I finally came to the conclusion, I can't do this on my own. I've got to pay somebody money. I've got to put some skin in the game here. And so I've been working with this group called Metabolic Research Center. This isn't a commercial for them, by the way, out of Springfield. And the, the reason I'm working with them is because my wife had a coworker at the school Uh, who over the course of last year, within like seven or eight months, she lost over 100 pounds just following this particular plan. And uh, my wife was like, "Eh, maybe maybe you should give these guys a shot and and go for that. And and this lady was really like a a billboard that, hey, this this works. This this can work. And and I kind of hope that I can be a billboard for this to work. And I I thought it was funny when when my wife was sharing her, her magnified testimony a while ago and talking about you know, love, that she wanted to tell this kid, hey, you're loved, but sometimes telling somebody you're loved is telling them what not to do. She learned that telling me what not to do. Like, don't eat that cookie. I love you, so don't eat that cookie. Uh, So I gave her lots of practice to prepare her for that room. But um, what if I invited you? And I I did, I, I, I used this time to give a commercial and say, hey, you guys should go to MRC if you you feel like you need to lose weight. But I had never lost any weight. You'd think, um, I don't know that I want to pay somebody money to stay the same way that I am. It it wouldn't make sense. It, It wouldn't work that way. You'd be crazy to. Well, as Christians, our message is that Jesus can make a difference in a person's life. As Christians, our message is that Jesus is hope and Jesus is joy. But if he isn't making a difference in our lives, then our life doesn't match the message that we proclaim. And I assure you, it's not the message's fault. It's our fault for not living up to the message. 
And that's the point here. So that the word of God may not be reviled. We're going we're gonna to circle back to that in just a moment. The next group, though, Paul focuses on is the younger men. And he's got one thing to say to them. I think it's funny. He's got one thing to say to them. It's the thing that he's already said to everybody else. And I thought, is it because the younger men just can't comprehend more than one thing? I just want you guys just focus on one thing. All right, I'm not going to give you a list like everybody else. You get one thing. And what is it? Self-control. Guys, young men learn self-control. Again, huge problem on Crete. Self-control would certainly stand out for those. And from here, what happens is, is Paul kind of merges Titus in here. It, it, Titus, we believe, is a young man like Timothy. He would probably fall into that category. And so Paul uh, kind of moves in and begins to address Titus specifically. And he says, Titus, I want you to be a model of good works. Uh, this instruction and really everything that follows stands in contrast to to the false teachers that have already infiltrated these churches. We've already talked about them from chapter 1. But notice again, verse 116, how Paul describes the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their what? Their works. And so Paul says, Titus, you need to have good works. You need to be doing what is right. And, and it's no secret that good works are meant to accompany a genuine faith in Christ. We see it all over the Scriptures. Good works are present. Genuine faith results in good works. James says it the most succinctly and the most clearly when he says faith without works is dead. And then he gives that really good illustration and says, suppose a guy comes in and says, man, I'm hungry. And I'm cold and need some clothes. I need some food. And you pray and say, be blessed. What good is your faith at that point without works? Give the man some food. Give the man some clothes. That's the point. And so Titus is to take a lead in, in the good works that are to be done. And then it results at the end of chapter 2 where we dropped off that the churches will be known and they will be zealous for good works. It's infectious. I want to harp on this too much because we're going to come back to this at the end. But there's no shortage of opportunities to do good. If you can't just simply open your eyes and look around and, and listen to people, you're missing opportunities all over the place. Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. There's never a shortage of people to do good in their lives, and so look around and listen and learn and love people. Second, Titus is to show integrity in his teaching. Again, contrasting with the false teachers. Titus must teach what is right and for the right reasons. The false teachers were coming in with a message that was monetarily profitable for them. They would teach whatever they needed to teach in order to gain from the people. Paul says it this way, they, they, the, the people have the itching ears and the false teachers are willing to scratch the itching ears. They're, they're willing to say whatever they have to say keep their power, to keep their money. Paul instructs Titus, no, you need more integrity. Titus, you must be about the spiritual growth of the sheep that are entrusted to your care. Sometimes that's saying hard things that people don't want to hear. Titus, like the older men, is called to be dignified as well. There's a seriousness and an earnestness that's required of those who would lead a church. 
The stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. We, we can think about the surgeon who you go to, and, and, and the stakes are high for a surgeon every time they hold the scalpel. Every time they're watching what's going on with somebody's blood pressure and, and the things that are going on in the body. But a pastor bears responsibility as well. I've always found it uh, daunting when you consider what's said in Hebrews chapter 13 that, that the, the pastor, the elders, are to watch for the souls of the people and to care for them. Watch over and care for the souls of the congregation. It takes somebody who can be dignified and understand the earnestness of the job. Finally, Titus is to be sound in his speech. In other words, in such a way that, that it can't be condemned by others. And this certainly relates to teaching, but I think this is broader in its scope. I think, think this deals with the day-to-day -day conversational language uh, that a pastor would have. Paul worded it this way to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was young. So he says, instead, then be an example, Timothy, to believers in your word, in your conversation, in your faith, in your purity. And he's calling Titus here to be sound in his speech in what he's visiting. Uh, not too long ago, I, one of our church family uh, had gone and they were, they were traveling and they went to a church and, and uh, I, I didn't get permission to tell this story, but I'm not going to give any of the details. But they, they stood and they, they, they were there in the church service. They were listening to the pastor. And then afterwards, they went out to lunch with the pastor. And I guess he started dropping bombs, verbal bombs. And they were kind of like, oh, you know, what, what, what's happening in this moment? Well, this is what we're talking about. Sound in speech. Um, how would that settle with you in that moment? But the bigger question is, how does that settle with the world? Because they're watching and they're observing. That's why Titus is called to this. In the same way that the younger women are called to be examples in their behavior, Titus is to act in such a way that even his opponents would be put to shame. They have nothing evil to say about him. Who were Titus' opponents? The false teachers. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to say, don't follow this guy. Don't listen to this guy. Give them no reason to discredit you, is Paul's point. A couple of Sundays ago, I asked the question as we were getting started, what is it, what was it that makes Jesus attractive to people? And there were some really good answers that were given. They varied, but, but all of them described his character. I think somebody said, well, he's kind. Again, that, that kindness draws people in. Somebody had mentioned that Jesus speaks what's true and, and truth is what sets us free. Jesus, Jesus loved others. I love reading through the Gospels. And I love reading about how the lepers who couldn't approach anybody would approach Jesus. How the maligned in society, the, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the, the great sinners, Jesus would go and, and sit with them and dine with them and talk with them. His love drew people in. Hmm. Somebody said he had a message that was different. He had a message of redemption. A message of hope. Who else has given that message in this world? I can't go to one other religion in this world and says, oh, yeah, that gives redemption and hope. It doesn't. 
Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is why it is the good news that we share. And because of his character, those in need of a physician, they flock to Jesus. And, and guys, when we teach what Jesus taught, but not only teach what Jesus taught, but live like Jesus lived, loving husbands and children and, and practicing purity, being self-controlled, sound in speech and, and dignified and being kind and doing good works, others are attracted to us like moths to a flame. They say, tell me about your hope in this moment. Tell me how you can be joyful right now. Tell me how you're at peace. Tell me how you have self-control. The world watches and they observe. And they're curious. We shine like lights in darkness when we follow the instructions that are listed here in Titus chapter 2. Because like Paul intended for the, the Christians on Crete to stand out like a sore thumb, we're to stand out like a sore thumb in our culture as well. There's to be something different and distinct about us. It's not so you can have a set of rules. This isn't a checklist. This isn't so you can wake up and feel good about yourself and say, oh, I was dignified today. I loved people today. No, it's for the glory of God. It's, it's pointing people to the true light of Christ so that he's magnified, he's glorified. That's the intent. And so older men, older women, younger women, younger men, where is the Spirit encouraging you to grow? Where are you being challenged? In what areas of life do you need to pray for more grace to be like Jesus? I'm not asking you to pull yourself up from your bootstraps today, get your holy act together. I'm asking you to embrace the good news. I'm asking you to believe the gospel that, that is so clearly laid out for us in verse 11. That the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Look at verse 12. Training us. The gospel is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's what trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I think during our prayer time this morning, Jeremy had prayed, we can't do it. <laughs> Only Jesus can do it. And so when we come to the end of ourselves and, and wives, you say, I just can't love this person anymore. He's a wreck. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. I can't be kind to this person. I can't be dignified. I can't be self-controlled. You can't. Only Jesus can. That's the good news. Jesus can. And even better, Jesus did. He conquered sin. He faced it all. And he did it on our behalf. Many of you, this is how we shine as lights in darkness. By walking according to what's listed for us here in Scripture following the example of Jesus, finding our power in Jesus' enablement through the Holy Spirit. Before I pray, I want to give you a few things that you can focus on this week. We've been talking about magnifying and doing good. I want to encourage you, continue daily declaring the goodness of the Lord. Find outlets to do that. If you're not a social media person, it's fine. You don't have to do it on social media. 
share with your family. Share with those you work with. Share with friends that you encounter. Here's what God's doing. Declare his glory. Magnify him in conversations. And then this month, we, as every year, have many opportunities to do good. Uh, yesterday, I saw it over and over, opportunities of people doing good. Engaging in service, doing whatever needed to be done. It was a good example of how we can be good to our neighbors. We're, we're collecting canned fruit for people, helping people. Some of you may have noticed if you came in the basement, there's a table there. We're wanting to collect over 400 cans for people helping people to go into their, their, their food holiday baskets, but then also to stock their shelves well for next year. These go to people and families that probably wouldn't otherwise buy fruit. They wouldn't have it. It goes in with all sorts of other stuff that enables them to have a, a good holiday dinner with their families. Uh, Katie had mentioned last week, this month for the Pregnancy Resource Center, we're focusing on collecting wipes. I already noticed that in the tote downstairs, there's already some wipes. Thank you for that. But these, again, go to families who are in need. It gives us an opportunity to do good, to show the fruit of our faith. Republic Nursing and Rehab, every year we partner with them uh, to adopt residents and you're asked to spend about $40 on a resident. There's a wish list, just things that they, they might want, things that you could purchase for them. Uh, we have those available downstairs. And so if you want to do that, you want to be a blessing to one of the residents, uh, you can just sign your name, take the envelope that has the number on it that you signed by, and uh, there's instructions in there. Those need to be back December 5th. This has been an incredible partnership. I want to encourage you, though, as well, if you participate in that, please write a card too. Now, these are gifts that Santa Claus comes in and brings, but I'm pretty sure most of them don't believe in Santa Claus anymore at this point in their life. But uh, write a letter and just let them know who you are. Let them know about your faith in Christ. Introduce your family to them in that letter. Just give them some contact because, as most of you know, these residential care facilities, they have been devoid of contact. You can't get in, you can't get out be a great way to express the love of Christ. Every year, people helping people who we collect food for, they also offer people the opportunity to buy presents for local kids. And uh, their presents, there's a wish list. You buy the presents, you drop them off, and uh, then the parents are able to give those presents to their kids as if they were able to afford them when they couldn't afford them. And it's a great opportunity locally for us to do good. Support our missionaries. Give extra to our Manna Feeding Center. I think Dustin had mentioned uh, in, in a recent uh, email conversation that we should be able to give a, 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 a Christmas bonus to our missionaries again uh, because we have that surplus in the missions account. I'm grateful for that. They're grateful for that. You know what we did last year? We, we, I, I had heard about this through, through the radio, uh, through a podcast I was listening to. There's a group called Food for the Hungry. I don't know if anybody here ever heard of Food for the Hungry. Um, you know, my, my in-laws that are over here and my parents, they don't really need anything, but I want to buy them something, but they wouldn't use it, uh, whatever I would buy anyway. Last year, we bought a, we bought a, a goat for a family in another country and dedicated it in their honor. So they, they bought a goat, <laughs> Uh, for a family and the food for the hungry goes and they do this stuff. It, it's really cool they, they supply things to families and it's not a goat that they're gonna kill and eat right there It's a goat that will give them a livelihood in that community 
We're talking third world environment. You can buy chickens. You can, they got a chicken in the month club. Uh, you can give regularly. There's all sorts of things you can do. I think there's one called the farm and you give a lot of money and you buy them all sorts of animals. Just great opportunities for us to do good. You know, we do good by praying for others. Just praying for them. I appreciate what Tori did this morning. I can't tell you how many times people have said, hey, will you, will you pray for me? And I, I, I ignore it in the moment, and then I forget it even later. But you're doing good for others as you just offer prayers for them. Look around, listen, learn, love. Who are you going to interact with this week that you know that person needs encouraged? That person needs to hear about the love of Christ. It may be a neighbor. It may be a family member. A friend, a complete stranger. But we, we must move purposefully from this place into our cars, into our neighborhoods, into our places of employment, purposefully ready to show the love of Christ. Guys, this is how we shine as lights in the darkness. I'm gonna ask you just to bow with me for a moment. I'm gonna pray for us, but I do wanna give you just a moment to pray. Maybe, maybe the Spirit is working and tugging and saying, okay, this area of your life right here, this area of your life, this is where you need to repent. This is where you need to change. This is where you need to put your faith in Jesus to make you more. You fill in the blank. Maybe there's people that come to your mind right now and you know, I just, I'm going to pray for them right now. Or there's a commitment that, that there's some way in your life that you're going to do good. You know of an opportunity. Take this moment and pray right now. Father, we thank you that we know Jesus. And because we know Jesus, we know what love is. We know what it is to put the interest of others above ourselves. We know what it is to do good. We know what it is to be kind. But my, how we fail in implementing that in our day-to-day. -day. And God, you continue to show mercy and you continue to be gracious as we grow to, to really entrust and really build our lives from the gospel. And I'm thankful for that, but God, help us this week to make some strides forward in loving others. Lord, if there's, there's young women here who, who look at that, that list and, and consider it, what it is to be a Christ follower and their, their demographic and their position, God, that you would, you would so encourage them this week in those areas of weakness. For the young men, for all of us who are called to do good, to be sound in our speech, God, help us. Christ, do it for us as we entrust ourselves to you. May we as individuals and we corporately as a church shine as light in the darkness. God, I pray that next week there will be testimonies of people that come and and they say, I had people asking me this week about the hope, about the joy, about the peace that they saw in my life. God, help us to display Christ, magnifying Him through our day to day. 
in every way we can. Help us in that endeavor, we pray in Jesus' name.